Every business owner will exit their business at some point. If you want to learn how to create value, understand what makes your business attractive to a buyer, and then how to negotiate the sale of your business, or as John says, punch above your weight with that buyer, you're going to improve your skill stack on this episode with John Warlow. He's the best-selling author of Built to Sell, top 10 Forbes-ranked podcast host on Built to Sell Radio, CEO of the Value Builder System. He has started and exited four companies. I think you would agree it's safe to say a couple of things at a minimum. John is a subject matter expert and advocate for business owners on creating value in their business, maximizing their return on their legacy, and he's one busy guy. John, welcome to Business Leaders Podcast. Hey, it's good to be with you, Bob. Thank you for taking the time. Hey, John, I've read your previous books and have bought additional copies, you know, to share with business owners for you folks looking on video. That's the book. There you go. I've got it. And that one's dog-eared, dog-eared and worn out. But your most recent book, The Art of Selling Business, it's an important book. I think it's a must-have investment for every business owner. I just have to ask, being as busy as you are, why this book? Why now? Yeah, it's funny. You mentioned the podcast I do. I've done something like 300 episodes. And what I've come to learn is that there is a cadre, a small cohort of entrepreneurs who seem to get much better offers when they go to sell their business than the industry sort of prevailing benchmark. And it got me just really curious about what it is that this small group are doing? What do they know that others don't? What are the secrets? Independent of what industry you're in or what mechanics of your business, it seems like there was something they were thinking and doing differently. And so I tried to still that down into just some lessons and some secrets. And, and that's what inspired me to write the book. You know, in looking at that, you know, so you're doing field research, like you said, you're talking to business owners every week on Built to Sell Radio. You know, if you don't have your finger on the pulse of the business owner, no one else does. So I have questions, as you would imagine. You know, for now, we're in the midst of COVID. You know, on the selling trends for business owners that were hit, you know, in a difficult patch during the COVID pandemic, what do you see the trends doing here for during this period of time and post-pandemic? Well, there's two big things that we've seen. You know, we've actually just done some research where we looked at people that complete the value builder questionnaire, which is sort of our intake questionnaire for people who use the system prior to the announcement of the pandemic in March of, of uh, 2020. And then the next eight months during the pandemic. And two big things pop. One is that the pandemic is causing business owners to want to sell sooner. They've moved up their sell-by date by 20%. Number two is their appetite to do a family transition pass their business down to their kids has dropped through the floor. In lieu, they are now planning to sell their business to a third party. And we could riff on why that is. My guess is it's probably just the stress of, of the pandemic has left owners wounded and not wanting to pass that stress on to their kids. And so they, they're like, I want out and I want to sell it to somebody other than my kids. It's funny. I've had a number of those conversations as well with business owners and you know, the, particularly the business owners that made it through 08, 09 and recovered and back. And then they go, really? I'm getting another once in a lifetime event within the 10 years. <laughs> how many of these can I survive? You know, so for that business owner, then how do they know when it's the right time to sell? You know, I think there's a qualitative way to answer that question, which is probably the opposite of when you think it's the right time to sell. The right time to sell is when you're on the way up, not the way down. I just did a podcast literally 10 minutes before our call, Bob, and it was with an entrepreneur who built a company, was on the way up, had an offer from News Corp owned by Rupert Murdoch, founded by Rupert Murdoch, and shunned it. Said, no, no, we're going to go grow and build and ultimately wrote it right over the top, raised 10 million bucks, didn't build the company that he thought he was going to build and, and sold it in a fire sale for a million dollars. So the shareholders and he got virtually nothing from the deal. 
it's a very common instance when we ride it over the top. So that's a qualitative way of thinking about it. It's probably the best time to sell is when you least feel like it's a good time. There's also a very objective way to answer this question, and that is when you hit the freedom point. So the freedom point is when the sale of your company after tax and after paying commissions and so forth would garner enough money for you to live happily successfully for the rest of your life. And so some people say like, okay, how do I calculate that? Basically take how much income you want and multiply it by 33. That implies a 3% withdrawal rate. And once your business reaches that amount of money, the question I think you need to answer is, am I prepared to give up financial freedom in return for the next tranche of growth? Because the next zero on your top line revenue line isn't necessarily going to fundamentally change your lifestyle at all. And when you reach that point, I think it's worth just saying, am I willing to gamble that? It's like the blackjack player puts all the chips in the table. You know, as a business owner, if you own a concentrated position in your company and it's a big part of your net worth, you're effectively gambling that freedom every time you wake up in the morning. And so, look, I know there's lots of reasons to build a business, it can be to you know create something that is much larger than yourself, and that's a, a, an admirable goal. It's just I think willing. It's worth asking yourself the question: once you crest the freedom point, am I willing to make that trade off again? And I think you know, like you said earlier, I think the answer for more and more owners is no. I think I'm I've had enough for sure. You know, so for that business owner, and you know, he's negotiating, like you said, uh, Murphy, Rupert Murdoch on what on. How do you gain leverage as a smaller business owner when you're working with an industry giant? Well, you want multiple offers, right? You want competitive tension, multiple people buying your business. And what I found is that a lot of people get enamored with or fall in love with the idea of selling to a strategic, like a a News Corp or Rupert Murdoch, if you're a media company. The challenge with falling head over heels in love with the idea of selling to one type of buyer is that you limit the universe of potential acquirers. And it's the opposite of what you want. You want a lot of potential acquirers because that's going to guarantee or or at least maximize the odds that you can get multiple offers. And multiple offers is what allows you to punch above your weight. And so there's sort of three types of buyers. And I would, in the shoes of an entrepreneur, be open to all three. So there's an individual investor, right? Who comes in and wants to buy a job effectively. There's a private equity group very, very common these days for small and mid-sized businesses to be bought by private equity groups. And then there are the strategic acquirers. If you can remain open to all three, in a funny way, it actually gives you more leverage to sell to the person you actually want to sell to because you've got competitive offers. If you've only got one offer, it's very hard to punch above your weight. Yeah, I think that if you did a comparison matrix, if you had three offers from the three types of buyers, you know, you could compare and contrast. And if you have one, that really does disallow the ability to compare and contrast. You know, for the owners that are, you know, basically interesting in selling without looking desperate, how do they let potential buyers know that they're coming to market? Yeah, look, I think there's the magic in the word partnership. So I think you can approach a potential acquirer about a partnership. And most, you know, acquirers will see through that language as, oh, this might be an interesting strategic partnership or potentially an acquisition. But it gives you plausible deniability, right? It gives you the, the ability to say, well, that's not actually what I meant. I genuinely meant a partnership. But if you look at all of the stories that I've done for Built to Sell Radio, that a lot of them it is starts with, the relationship begins with a partnership. One comes to mind immediately is Stephanie Breedlove. So Stephanie built a, a wonderful little payroll company, $9 million in revenue when she does a deal, a marketing partnership with care.com. Care.com is like the Angie's list of care providers. She does a marketing and just a, basically sharing content. And ultimately that 
transcends into a strategic conversation. And the fact that they had a pre-existing relationship allowed Stephanie to know a little bit more about Care.com. Care.com had 7 million subscribers. Stephanie had just 10,000 customers. And so she made the case that, look, if 1% of your 7 million subscribers buy my payroll service, well, that's 70,000 customers, right? It's a business seven times the size of mine. Long story short, Stephanie sold her $9 million payroll company for $54 million. It's an unbelievable exit. It's so outlandish, the valuation so out of this world, but it started with the partnership conversation. That's interesting. You get a free look or like a de-risk look at how do they behave when we're working together as a partner. That's really a, That's great, exactly. a great idea. Go ahead. We often think that acquisitions happen from you know, these sort of events where you, you know, people don't know each other. When in actual fact, in most cases, the acquirer knows the person that they're acquiring. Takes some of the mystery out of that mess for sure. Yeah. You know, for the, the business owner that's getting rel- is thinking about selling, how do they break that news to their employees? Man, that is a tough one. And it's one of the, you know, the, the instances where I think what is morally right is strategically wrong. So what is morally right and feels naturally for most business owners is to tell their employees, to tell them they're thinking of putting their business on the market, to tell them they've got an offer. The problem with that is the moment you tell employees, what are they going to do? They're going to brush up their LinkedIn profile or resume, and they're going to start sending it off to people in the industry. And quickly, word is going to travel that you're for sale. And that can really undermine the value of your company and your negotiating leverage. So I think it's the right thing to do morally, and it's the wrong thing to do strategically. So I think strategically, you want to wait until the deal is signed. Now, there's a couple of people on your team, you'll probably need to consummate a deal, a senior management team, for example, if you have one, they're going to need to know, you're going to want to put an incentive in place for them to help you get it over the line and as well, you know, keep it confidential. But this can be very emotional. You know, I, I talk about in the book, there's a, a woman who built a, a very nice business, 60 employees. And when she said, she went down to tell her employees she had sold, uh, she broke down in tears and sobbed uncontrollably in front of her entire team, partly because of the stress of selling her company, but partly because of the guilt she felt in having this secret from the people that she owed so much to. So look, it's one of those uncomfortable truths, I think, about selling a company is you've got to keep it confidential and it just feels terrible. You know, I think the unsaid commentary is if you're getting older in life, you know, your late 60s, late 70s, I think the employees kind of know. I mean, unless you're going to live as old as Moses, I think they know you're going to sell at some point. But, you know, going back to that one comment where you were talking about a bidding war. So, you know, business owners listening goes, yeah, I want to do a bidding war. How do I create a bidding war for my company? Any thoughts? Yeah, look, I mean, I think this is a who, not a how question. So Dan Sullivan wrote a book recently called Who, Not How. It's a great book. You should pick it up. It basically says that most of us as entrepreneurs think problems are how problems, meaning how do I find multiple bidders for my company? How do I go about doing that? And in fact, it's a who problem, meaning you need to find an intermediary, an M&A professional to take your company to market, to create competitive tension. That's their job. In many cases, they have a Rolodex of private equity groups groups that they can reach out to. They know the strategics in your place if they're an industry expert. And that's their job is to create, that's why they make as much money as they do is to create competitive tension. So instead of trying to do it yourself, it's, I think, a, a bit of a fool's errand. I, I interviewed a guy for their show. I actually put him in the book. Arik Levy was his name. He built a company called Luxor One. It's really amazing business. They put 
lockers into Manhattan apartments where people who buy online can get their stuff delivered. And Levy goes to raise money, thinking it's a DIY job. He's thinking, how do I raise money? How do I kind of sell part of my business? And he goes down to Sand Hill Row in Silicon Valley. And after dozens and dozens of meetings, he can't get to any of the partners at the VC firms. He's kind of meeting with like junior associates and people right out of MBA school. And he leaves Silicon Valley, puts his kind of tail between his legs, and he's got nothing to show for his attempt to sell his business. Few months later, he gets an email from a guy who in one of the buildings that he's put his lockers in, a guy named Trip Wolf. And he says, look, I love what you've done. I believe in your company. If you ever want to sell or raise money, let me know. Trip is an M&A professional, right? Our calls him up, says, great, you know, I want to raise money. And Trip goes out and gets seven offers, five of which are acquisition offers. Levy sells his company to a public business. There's a science to selling a company and there's an art to it, but the science is done and known by the M&A professional. So, I mean, just hire one. It's, I think they're worth their weight. You know, it's funny. I think for many of the entrepreneurs, they're so steeped in, I did it, I built it, I grew it, I understand it. So therefore I can translate all those skills to selling it. And I think the emotional investment in that process and the lack of expertise may be the first and only time they sell their company. And so I think that the money spent on a professional is a very good investment, in my opinion. You know, so yeah, interesting. You know, so one of the specific things talking with the client, what does that client or owner do when you have a potential buyer want them to sign a no shop clause? What do you do? Yeah. So look, a no shop clause is almost always part of a letter of intent. And a letter of intent is sort of like an engagement letter, right? Like it's an engagement proposal. You're not actually married. Most LOIs or letters of intent are not binding, but they are a pretty strong indication that you're engaged. And part of that engagement, like an engagement in life, is you agree not to see other people. You basically, on a no shop clause, you agree not to negotiate with anybody else. And when you sign a no shop clause, your negotiating leverage swings heavily away from you in favor of the buyer. Once that LOI is signed, the buyer has leverage over you. And oftentimes they'll use that leverage to retrade and try to basically eke out better terms because they know you're a bit compromised. So the key, I think, before you sign a no shop clause is to ensure all of the material deal points that you are, believe are important are negotiated up front rather than waiting until the LOI. And you know, a story in the book about a, a guy who signed a letter of intent with some nebulous terms around what his employment would be, you know, what the reps and warranties were going to be, the things that are material to the deal. And the acquirer said, oh, we'll figure those out downstream. We'll work those out in due diligence. Well, of course, the deal fell apart because those things were not agreed to up front. So the moral of the story is get everything that's material or important to you done and agreed to at the letter of intent stage. Because once you sign that no shop clause, you lose a lot of leverage. Now, you know, that sort of plays into the earnout issues that many people have for a number of the business owners I've talked to where they're in an earnout situation. If you've given up control or it's not very specific, the earnout is a risk issue for them. Oh, for sure. I mean, gosh, the number of stories I've written about and heard, a disaster earnout story. I mean, one comes to mind, this guy named Rod Drury. Do you know about Rod? He started Zero, the competitor to QuickBooks. Big cloud-based software, you know, accounting platform, billion-dollar company, Unicorn. Well, Rod got the money to start Zero by building a company called Aftermail. Aftermail was around the time of Sarbanes Oxley when all these big Fortune 500 companies had to like archive their email and be able to access and you know paper trail and so forth. So Rod builds this thing called Aftermail, two million dollars in revenue. He sells it to one of the big systems integrators who have all the Fortune 500 companies as clients, one of the IT companies. And 
he sells it in part on an earnout. He sells it for $45 million, 15 of which is paid in cash, the rest in an earnout. Well, Rod gets a check for $15 million. He's a young guy. What's he going to do? He takes his foot off the gas. He takes a breath. He <laughs> finally celebrates the sale of his company. He tries to start to navigate the, the company that bought his to try to figure out how he's going to kind of deal with this earnout. Well, six months in, he's missed his first target. The earnout gets harder because you, there's usually a gating system where you don't get budget to get to the next gate unless you hit the first gate. Anyway, six months in, Rod bails and walks away from roughly $30 million worth of potential money because he just doesn't have what it takes to go through that process, nor do most entrepreneurs. For most of us, we're just not wired to work for anybody, let alone a big company. Again, nobody's having any tag days for Rajuri. He built a incredibly successful company on the back of a $15 million exit. So, you know, he's fine. But it's a good reminder that earnouts A, are always at risk, almost always at risk, I should say, and B, anathema for most entrepreneurs. Yeah, it's almost like just say no, but sometimes you don't have a choice. You know, for the business owner where the potential acquirer wants to talk to their employees or their customers, how would the business owner protect themselves if that's what the potential acquirer wants to do? So gated due diligence is important. And what that means is, in particular, if you're selling to a competitor, the competitor needs to invest money in diligence. Now, there's some bad actors in the acquisition world who will use the veil of an acquisition to find out confidential information about your company and to steal your employees. And although it doesn't happen commonly or frequently, it does happen. I, I read about one story in the book where private equity group literally interviewed or, or made acquisition offers to 80 different companies, 80 different companies. They didn't plan to buy 80 different companies. They planned to hire a bunch of employees they met through having diligence conversations with 80 different companies. They ultimately made two acquisitions, but then on the 78 companies they didn't buy, they created a systematic process to hire those people away from those companies. And there was nothing those founders could do because they had let the line into the hen house. They had actually exposed themselves. And so the, the key to get away from that is stage due diligence, which means that after you sign a letter of intent, there are gates that you pass through of increasingly more and more and more confidential information that you're going to reveal to the buyer. But they have to invest time and time with lawyers, time with advisors to get to each gate. And so the more and more they invest in the deal, the less likely they're just a tire kicker, the more likely that they're serious about consummating. So something like you know talking to your customers, first of all, it's not a great idea ever, but if you have to let them talk to a couple of your customers, it would be the very last step of diligence after they've spent a few hundred thousand dollars with legal fees to get them to the dance. It's never the first thing that you would have them do, certainly not until they've invested considerably in the process. You know, and you know, looking for the business owner, things to avoid. You know, we talked about some of the issues around earnout and some of these, the fishing expeditions, for lack of a better mm -hmm. term. You know, what are some of the other things that some of the Fortune 500 companies or private equity groups do to advantage on the business mm -hmm. owner? I mean, the most common would be retrading. And retrading is effectively agreeing in a letter of intent to sell to buy a business for a certain amount and then over the due diligence period manufacture reasons to pay less for the business. And there's legitimate retrading and illegitimate retrading. So legitimate retrading is if you miss your numbers running the business during diligence, all bets are off. That's a fair, you know, retrade. But illegitimate retrading is when an acquirer does it 
simply because they can, simply because you bought the lake house, you've told your spouse, you've told your employees, and three days before the deal gets consummated, the the choir rocks up and says, you know what, we said we were going to pay X, but now we're going to pay 20% less. And you say, well, why? What's your justification? And they really manufacture something fairly superficial. The reality is they know that they've got you. So look, I think there's a few ways you can counter unfair or illegitimate retrading. And I talk about a story in the book that comes from one of the guys I interviewed. It's called the no retrading handshake. Basically, the idea is that at the letter of intent stage, you walk up to the acquirer and you say, look, I'll do this deal on one condition. What's that? That there is no retrading. And the very fact that you acknowledge the game and that you're a sophisticated seller and that you are not going to participate in that game probably gets you nine-tenths of the way there. Probably gets them to realize that, okay, the gig is up. These guys are pretty sophisticated. We can't you know, pull the wool over their eyes. So that's the no retrading handshake. There's lots of different sort of ideas in the book, but that's probably the, the one that, uh, that I think is most valuable. You know, I was listening to an episode and the guest escapes me, but he had a three by five card and he says, there's basically three inviolable things that he would not put up with. He said, I'd go back and I'd look at that card and said, any of those three were deal breakers. Yeah. Getting clear on your deal breakers going into a deal, because once you're into the throes of a deal, it can be very emotional, right? And uh, yeah, getting clear on your red lines are really important. Well, I, you know, I don't know if that's deal fatigue or decision fatigue, but you just get done. You just go, I just want to be done. Yeah. Yeah. It's fatigue so, of some sort. <laughs> you know, it, it's interesting, you know, I, in the business community market, you know, gifted entrepreneurs, you know, I'm a fan of business owners, you know, they're most of the economy in the smaller space. And I'm surprised at given how much they know about the business enterprise that they run, how little they really are aware of the exit or sale process. And as a comment about what you're doing, you're basically demystifying the process, you know, between built to sell, you know, and the art of selling your business, what you're doing now and the podcast, you know, for the business owner that's out there going like, it seems like there's so much to know, you know, my sense is get committed, you know, get the books, read the books. All right. Make notes on the books. Go back through and go, what did I learn? And then, you know, on the podcast, I suppose they could take and search for industry podcast specific things to look in their industry. And the storytelling format is incredibly instructive. And I listen to the podcast regularly, trying to understand the business owner mindset and what happened to them. You know, in advising clients, they go, I heard a story. Don't do this. You know, this is a great way to do it. Like the lady that talked to them, I says, you know, I've got 10,000 people, you've got 7 million, 1% really moves the needle. And you go, how valuable is that perspective to a potential selling business owner? Yeah, it's a big deal. And I think you're absolutely right, Bob. The, you know, the sellers are like you have a tremendous degree of respect for entrepreneurs. I consider myself one. So I feel like we're brothers on that level. I think we get so good at running our companies, developing a marketing plan, hiring, firing employees, all that jazz. You don't get the experience on selling a company. And I think that the best analogy that I like to talk about is Sully. Do you remember Sully, the guy who landed the, the plane on the Hudson? I mean, Sully was a trainer. He'd been flying for 40 years. He knew everything there was to know about a 737, like literally everything. And yet he'd never had the chance to land the plane on the Hudson River, right? He had one shot to get that right and the stakes couldn't have been higher. I think the same is true of entrepreneurs. I mean, they are some of the most savvy, street smart, sophisticated business people on the planet, yet we only get one shot. 
to really have a fantastic exit. So it's worth trying to prepare, I think, yourself the best that you can, certainly to understand some of the kind of less scrupulous things that acquires do to try to prey on your naivete or ignorance. You know, it's, there's a comment I was talking to a gentleman, we were talking about legacy risk. And so you go through and you're trying to sell the company yourself. You go, it costs too much to hire professionals. I don't think that the business owner has the framework to go. My return on investment for bringing the best of the best into the business to help me get it sold really affects the legacy that they leave for their family and the generations to come. I think it's an underappreciated and probably hard to quantify number, but certainly out there. You know, but John, for the listeners that are, are going to take it and say, yep, absolutely, I need to dig in. Where can they find out more about you, uh, Built to Sell, and so on? How do they find you on social media? I would just go to builttosell.com and you can opt in, provide your email address, and you'll get a fresh episode of Built to Sell Radio every single week. And it's free. There is an episode every week. And basically, it's an interview, and you've listened to a lot of them, Bob, interview with an entrepreneur about their exit. And I think just hearing firsthand from other entrepreneurs who've gone through the process is probably the best place to start. So just builttosell.com. You know, and I think about the quality of the guests that you have and their candor and willingness to share. I mean, it's like the story of life. You know, I've got my family. My wife said this. My kids did that. I had a tough one. My life changed. I was egocentric. You know, all of the story of life and your guests are really free in sharing what their experience is. And that's a real credit, I think, to the environment that you've established, you know, to let that kind of thing go. And, you know, to, to close, John, I think, you know, you're an incredibly experienced guide. You know, you're a, a generous business hero for the business owner, oh, honestly, you, you know, and, you know, you share freely what you know on the podcast and your books. I mean, it's an incredibly small investment for the knowledge packed in there. You know, I think for the business owners that are looking at maximizing their life's work, you know, they should take and reach out to, you know, builttosell.com, find you. And I thank you for being on Business Leaders Podcast. And thank you for sharing your time with us. Thanks, Bob. It was a pleasure.